Hey everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. If you're new, we hope you stick around and become a part of what God's doing here. Right now we're in a series in the life of Solomon called Cracks in the Foundation. His story as a king was told to explain why Israel was carried off into exile, and it helps us to examine the cracks in the foundation of our own lives and deal with them before they spread. Today's passage teaches us how to experience the presence and the nearness of God. I don't know whether you've ever struggled with that. I don't know if you've ever longed for a sense of the presence of God. Let me read the words of someone who did. When I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. I'm told God loves me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. You might be surprised to learn that those words were written by Mother Teresa. The quote is from a book published a decade after her death, revealing her private correspondence to spiritual mentors. It shows that for the last 50 years of her life, she experienced almost uninterrupted spiritual emptiness. At one point she wrote, there is such terrible darkness within me as if everything was dead. It has been like this more or less from the time I started the work. At another point she writes, the smile is a mask or a cloak that covers everything. And then, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see, listen, and do not hear. Well, there's much about her life and experience that we can't know and shouldn't speculate on. What her words should warn us of is that the path to draw near to God can't be found in religious or moral activity. You don't experience God's presence by just doing more good things. So how do you draw near to God? Some people would say it comes through meditation. Others would argue it's found in the beauty of nature. Still others would say that it comes in listening to certain kinds of music. How do you draw near to God? How can you experience his presence? The Bible's answer to that is a certain kind of temple, but maybe not the one you think. Almost a chapter and a half of Solomon's life story is taken up with the building of the temple in 1 Kings 6 and 7. Let's read a portion of that account in 1 Kings chapter 6. I'll read initially from verses 14 to 22. If you don't have a Bible, you can just click on the link for today's passage in the description below. 1 Kings 6 verse 14. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on this inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the, of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls, and he built this with, within as an inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. The house, that is, the nave in front of the inner sanctuary, was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar. No stone was seen. 
The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar, and Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. This is the word of God. Now, if you're reading this chapter on your own, chances are your eyes might start to glaze over. And even as I was reading, maybe that's what was happening to you. That's not because it isn't interesting or relevant to your life. It's because you can't read this section the way you do other parts of the Bible. It's more like a set of instructions from an architect to a builder. They're written to give us enough detail for us to be able to picture everything in our mind. And so you have to read them visually. You want to try and picture in your mind what's being described and hear the message that's in the imagery. Let me walk you through the highlights and show you how Solomon's temple pointed to the presence of God. Now, one of the unique things that Solomon's temple uh, that distinguished it from the other temples of its era was that it faced directly east. In fact, the tabernacle was set up facing east, and then Zerubbabel, when he rebuilt the temple, he made sure it faced east as well. The text never explains why, but if you're familiar with the Bible storyline, you know that when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they were sent eastward out of paradise, and the way was blocked for them to return. Uh, for instance, in uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, it says, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So humanity is driven eastward from the presence of God, and the way back for them to return is blocked. But now when God has a temple built, he makes sure that it faces eastward to say that he's creating a way for us to return to him. And in case we might have missed the message, he fills the temple with images of palm trees and angels and gold. And so there's no mistaking that it's a picture of Eden. As someone approached the temple, they would be retracing the steps back to paradise and the presence of God. And here's why that's important. Jennifer and I have a conversation that we've repeated hundreds of times throughout our marriage. I think most couples have at least one of these conversations. Our conversation is this. I lose something like my keys. And so I tell Jennifer, Jennifer, I lost my keys. Have you seen them? And instead of answering my question, she asks me, where did you last see them? <laughs> then as I retrace my steps mentally, I often remember where I left them and I go and I'm able to find them. At least in theory, that's the way it's supposed to work. The east-facing temple is a little bit like Jennifer's question about my lost keys. If you want to experience the presence and the nearness of God, remember where you lost it. We lost it in the garden, and we'll never experience God's nearness without dealing with the sin that spoiled it. Now, the next message of the temple came in its location. 
Solomon didn't just build the temple anywhere. Second Chronicles 3.1 says that he built it on Mount Moriah. Now, we're not supposed to read the Bible looking for hidden or secret meanings and little details. But when you hear that the temple was built on Mount Moriah, you can't help but remember, if you remember the Bible storyline, what happened there. Because it's the place where Abraham almost sacrificed his son Isaac. But at the last minute, God provided a substitute sacrifice. Genesis 22:14 commemorates the event with these words. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Solomon's temple declared that God was opening a way back to the paradise of his presence. And that way would come through a sacrifice that he himself would provide. Now, as he would enter the temple, two things would stand out. On your right, there was a bronze altar where sacrifices were being constantly offered. And on your left was a large metal basin filled with water for cleansing. The message was unmistakable. The way back to God's presence came through cleansing and sacrifice. And it must be some special sacrifice that God alone would one day provide because the doors to the room where God's presence dwelled were closed and the, only the high priest could enter once a year as a representative of the people. If that wasn't clear enough, Solomon had two 15-foot-high statues of golden angels guarding the presence of God like royal bodyguards. Nothing unholy could draw near. No one was just going to barge into God's presence. Solomon's temple invited people back to Eden, back to paradise in the presence of God. But the path back to him would only come by remembering the sin that had separated them from him and receiving the cleansing that can only come by the sacrifice God himself provides for us. So what does this have to do with Mother Teresa and the emptiness and darkness that she felt? And what does it have to do with our own longings to be closer to God? It shows us, I think, what nearness to God isn't. We don't get close to God by trying to be better people or doing heroic acts of service, no matter how noble or praiseworthy they might be. Prayer and meditation won't get us there either. And we don't experience his pres presence primarily by watching a sunset or a waterfall or a mountain peak. Of course, we'll feel more peaceful if we slow down and quiet ourselves from our hectic lives. And the beauty of nature speaks of the greatness of God. But Solomon's temple reminds us that we won't feel God's nearness without addressing the sin that separated us from him in the first place, and then receiving the cleansing from the sacrifice that God provided for us. If that isn't at the heart of how we relate to God, everything else is just wrapping on a present. It's close, but it's not the real thing. The temple that Solomon built pointed the way back to the presence of God, and it points the way for us today, too. But in the middle of the description of the temple construction, God interrupts Solomon with a message that's critical to understanding our relationship to him and the nearness we, we all seek. We learn that the religion of a temple never replaces the response of the heart. 
Just building a shiny gold building for people to gather would never guarantee that people would make their way back to paradise. The religion of a temple never replaces the response of the heart. Listen as I read verses 11 to 13. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Notice, first of all, how God refers to the temple. Did you catch it? He calls it a house. It's the Hebrew word for just a basic home where anyone would live. And the temple actually wasn't particularly awe-inspiring. It wasn't designed to be the eighth wonder of the world. It's not the Tower of Babel. It wasn't made to impress you the way you're impressed by the scale of the Sistine Chapel or the CN Tower. In fact, do you know what the size of the temple was? <laughs> In verse 2, it tells us. It says, The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Now, because it's in cubits, you're tempted to just read past the line. <laughs> but a cubit was a distance from your elbow to the tip of your hand, or about a foot and a half. That means that the temple was 90 feet long by 30 feet wide. Do you know what that looks like? I actually got out a measuring tape for our church, and guess what? The main sanctuary is 68 feet by 27 feet. Add the library, the washrooms, and the back stairwell, and it's almost exactly 90 feet. Solomon's temple was three stories tall, but it was about the size of Grace Baptist Church. <laughs> and I can assure you that no one has come to Grace and been in awe of our building. <laughs> the temple then, and the church today, is more about the message than it is about the architecture. The most amazing thing about the temple was that God had uniquely caused his presence to dwell there. But let's come back to what God told Sol Solomon in verse 12. He starts by saying, concerning this house that you are building, but then he says nothing about the house. It's all about Solomon's heart. He, he says, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you. And if you do all that, then I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. What's going on here? Solomon spent seven years and a whole lot of money building the temple. Didn't that count for something? I think that God's point is that the religion of a temple never replaces the response of the heart. He wants our repentance more than our religion. He looks at our trust in him more than our activity for him. And we get this wrong all the time. We confuse church attendance or Bible reading or volunteer work with our heart response to God. We mistake being busy for God with being faithful to God. I think of something similar when I go skiing. <laughs> At the top of a ski hill, you'll see people with top-of-the-line skis and boots and the latest ski wear. 
I'm getting off the chairlift with my rentals and the jacket that I bought at, at, on sale at Winners, and they look like they're part of the Canadian Olympic team. But then you see them doing a snowplow down the hill and you realize there often is no relationship between the quality of someone's gear and their skill at skiing. It's the same thing with religion. Sometimes our religious activity can be a cover for our unwillingness to deal with our heart before God. That's certainly not always the case. And great skiers will inevitably invest in great gear. <laughs> but God's not fooled by the labels. His eyes are always on our hearts. Now, this would have been chilling for the Israelites to read these words from verses 12 and 13. Because they knew that Solomon didn't end up walking in God's statutes. He didn't obey his rules. He didn't keep all his commandments. And as a result, that beautiful temple that Solomon had built was eventually leveled and burned to the ground. By the time they read this account, there was no king on David's throne. And the presence of God no longer dwelled on Mount Moriah. And so these words are a warning to us to examine our hearts. Are you hiding your disobedience with religious activity? Are you tempted to do stuff for God rather than do business with your heart? Know that God cares more about you than he does about what you do. He wants your trust and your obedience more than your busyness. Don't let the religion of a temple replace the response of your heart. So where does that leave us all today? There's much that we can learn from Solomon's temple, but the fact is it no longer exists. And the Dome of the Rock now sits atop Mount Moriah. How do we get close to God today? How can we experience his nearness? If we weren't in a pandemic, this would be the time of year when I'd be preparing for the men's canoe trip. Being out in God's creation stirs you with the beauty and glory of God. I remember last time we went, at one point, I was just feeling ready for bed and, and, and just tired from a, a long day when Ishan excitedly called us all out to the dock to look up at the stars. Well, we go down there and we just stared at the expanse of the sky and felt the awe of all that God has made. It was incredible. But that's not the same as God's nearness. That's not how we experience his presence. According to the Bible, that still comes through a temple. But today, a new temple points to paradise and the presence of God. Given the work and expense involved in building and then rebuilding Solomon's temple, it must have come as a shock when Jesus predicted that the temple would again be destroyed. In Luke 21, 5 and 6, it says this, While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He recognized that Solomon's temple had served its purpose in pointing people to the place where they had lost their relationship with God and the sacrifice that God would provide to purify them and lead them back to paradise in a relationship with him. But with Jesus' coming, that purpose was now complete. And Jesus announced that he was the new temple. He had come as the new meeting place between God and humanity. He's the way that we retrace our steps back to the garden. 
He's the substitute sacrifice that God provided on Mount Moriah. He's the one who cleanses us from our sin. He's the one who provides for our forgiveness. And so if you're trying to feel near to God and experience his presence without Jesus, then you're rejecting the hope that the scriptures provide and you'll find your path blocked and frustrated. Trying to get to God without Jesus is like barging into the most holy place in the temple. You'd see those 15 foot high angels guarding the presence of God and realize what a mistake you'd made. God is holy and we don't waltz into his presence on our own terms. But there are many people today who would agree that Jesus is the path to the presence of God. He's our new temple. But they miss the other half of the story that the Bible gives. In 1 Corinthians 3.9, Paul says, you are God's building. Then a few verses later, he adds in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's, God's spirit dwells in you? Now, it's not clear in the English, but all of the pronouns in these verses are plural. If Paul was a southerner, he might say, y'all are God's building. Y'all are God's temple. And God's spirit dwells in y'all. And the point is that he's not talking here about the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in individual believers, although that's certainly true. He's saying that the gathering of believers in Christ is the new temple of God. It's the, same, it's the same message in 1 Peter 2.5. That's where Peter says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. The fellowship of believers is the new meeting place between God and humanity. And so you can't grow in your experience of God's presence without investing time with other Christians in fellowship. If you're not willing to get close to other believers, you'll never learn what it means to really get close to God. And that's a struggle for us today. Because we live in a culture where just about everyone likes to say, I'm spiritual, not religious. Or they say, I'm not into organized religion. But what that really means is, I just want to do what I want and believe what I want and not have anyone else to tell me otherwise. If the fellowship of believers is a new temple of God and the key way that we meet with God and draw near to him, then the pandemic may be the greatest threat to your faith that you've ever faced. Because as the pandemic begins to wind down, the temptation that many of you will face will just be to not re-engage. Satan will tell you that you can still have God. You don't have to abandon your faith. You can get whatever teaching and worship you like on YouTube or television. And there are ways to volunteer in your community. And Satan will tell you that that's enough. After you die, someone may discover your letters or your journals and read as they did with Mother Teresa. There is such terrible darkness within me as if everything was dead. And they'll wonder how that could be even possible. Don't be led down that path. Purpose in your heart today to follow the path back to the garden and the presence of God. Jesus is that way. He asks more of us than a waterfall or a sunset does. He calls us to repentance and asks us to follow him. But he offers much more as well. 
But if you are a follower of Jesus, you experience God's presence in the fellowship of his people. Commit yourself to re-engage. Come out of this pandemic with a determination to invest in fellowship. Allow yourself to be counted as one of those living stones in the greater temple that Jesus is building in our midst. Let's seek his help now. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God who invites us to relationship. You want us to draw near. And there's something in the, in the longing of the human heart that, that wants nearness of God. We want to experience you. And yet so often we're not willing to admit and confront the sin that blocks our relationship with you. Thank you that you provided a sacrifice for sin. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross. Thank you that he took our place, that we might be forgiven and cleansed, that we might draw near to you, and that we might one day experience paradise in your presence. If there is anyone who does not know that hope, who hasn't drawn near through faith in Jesus Christ, lead them to yourself. And for those who have, Father, help them to seek in the fellowship of your people the presence of God that you promised to provide. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I hope this message has helped you to see the Bible's path to an experience of the presence of God. It comes in a relationship with Jesus Christ, but also in relationships with his people. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, share the link and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.